Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. Today's Promo Kitchen podcast is brought to you by Get In Touch, PPAI's industry branding campaign. This month, Get In Touch is live and on stage at Advertising Week with Seth Godin, Tuesday, September the 27th at 11 a.m. at BB King's in New York. Have you ever wanted to see Seth Godin live? Have you ever wanted to experience Advertising Week? Well, PPAI has complimentary tickets for you. So get in touch today to request your tickets to see Seth present Getting in Touch with the Work That Matters during Advertising Week in New York City. Session attendees will receive a limited edition art print from Seth's new 800-page volume of work, What Does It Sound Like When You Change Your Mind? A print signing with Seth will immediately follow the session. If you can't make it to New York, please stay tuned for the live stream information, which will be held on September 27th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please check back here and on our social feeds to plug in and watch the session live from Advertising Week in New York. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and joining me today in the guest chair is Jessica Heiner, VP of Key Accounts at The Magnet Group. Jessica got her start in the industry in 2003 when she worked as an account executive at the distributor promotion concepts. It was during this time that she had the chance to work with the great Paul Kiwit. Since then, it's been a swift rise throughout the organization as she has moved from a regional sales rep position to VP of key accounts in a few short years. Bill Korowitz, Magnet CEO, counts Jessica as one of the organization's key lieutenants. Armed with such experience, I'm looking forward to exploring the world of promotional products with Jessica and getting her take on the shifting sands that we see in our industry today. Jessica, it's so great to have you on the program. Welcome. Wow, what an introduction for me. Thank you so much, and I'm happy to be in this chair today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for taking the time. I know that lots of people are really excited to hear what you have to say. So we'll get started with the first question, and I'm curious if you can tell us what got you into the promotional products business back in 2003? Like, what were you doing before? I had, you know, and it's funny, there's a joke that I always say that I went to school and I actually got a job in the focus point of my major when I graduated because sometimes that's not necessarily the case. I had just graduated from Western Michigan in Kalamazoo in December of 2002 and, of course, was on the hunt for marketing and advertising career. There was a link with a mutual friend of mine that was working along with Amy Susan, who is still one of the account executives today at Promotion Concepts. 
there was an open position for, at that point, it was basically Paul's assistant and mm-hmm. uh, learned about the position, interviewed. He asked me when I could start, and I, of course, sarcastically, as I'm known for, said I can start in five minutes, just let me use the restroom, and uh, the rest is history. Right. That's awesome. So a lot of people listening to this are probably familiar with Paul. Paul, of course, has been a guest on the Promo Kitchen podcast in the past, and he's a creative legend. And so I'm curious if you can share with me what the single biggest lesson that you learned from Paul Kiwit was. You know, Paul is a person like many of us know within the industry that has just a wide breadth and depth of knowledge that you can never have enough time to learn. And I would say the number one thing that I got from the very beginning from working with Paul is you need to service your customer, whoever that is, from all ends of their business opportunities. Don't solely focus on one particular category of where they've originally come to you. Never be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to dig further down into their needs of their business and pick apart where you feel you can add additional service. Uh, right. There's not one area of focus that, of course, you should you know, focus all of your time on. It should be, of course, a wide range of things. That is what I would say was the most important thing that was constantly drilled into us as we moved throughout our focus on the various accounts. And so I'm really curious about that particular thing you just said in terms of how Paul challenged you to understand all aspects of that end client's business. And I think I recall many, many years ago, he had one of his end clients that came and presented along with him at Expo. I think it might have been Coca-Cola or Kellogg's or one of those big banner accounts that he had. And I was fascinated sitting in the audience, listening to him and his client talk about all sorts of things that didn't really relate to promotional products. And it was at a time where I was just fairly new in the industry. And I was thinking to myself, like, how cool is this that they're talking about legitimate business challenges that Kellogg's is facing and how promotional products can address those challenges? And when I first got into the business, I thought it was selling pens and T-shirts. And so he really opened my eyes as well. But here's my question. So it was a comment and a question, which is classic Mark Graham. (laughs) You moved over to the Magnet Group. How did that approach that you learned as a distributor in terms of evaluating all aspects of the end client's business, how does that manifest itself as a supplier? Are you able to do the same amount of business intelligence as a supplier when you're more or less cut off from the end client and you're really just dealing with the distributor who may be feeding you limited information? How does that approach help you on the supplier side? Great question and a couple different areas of how I approach it on this side of the table now. One, when customers have conversations with me or when I, of course, am doing business with them, they, I'm sure, can agree to this when I say, I want to be an extension of your brand team, whether that's, you know, providing ideas down to breaking apart how the program works for that particular end user and allowing for me to share insight, you know, the ebbs and flows of what I experienced, of course, working along with Paul and and along with Kellogg's at the time, you know, my experiences as a distributor, what I ran into as far as, you know, order opportunities and things were looking back on them now, what I would change. I think there's a variety of things 
as far as a presentation style goes, when I am, of course, in front of a distributorship office, how I tweak my presentation because I try to tweak it to, of course, the specific audience needs. And I also yeah. tweak it towards what I witnessed on the distributor side and what I didn't right. like. You know, try to take some of those things out. Obviously, everyone's opinion is different, but in the end, it's down to you have to know your audience. You have to know how they respond to certain things, and yep. you have to show them that you're interested in learning more. Yeah. And I think that's a great answer because whether it's a distributor that you're selling to or whether it's an end client, at the end of the day, the client's need is exactly the same in terms of your ability to listen, pick up on cues, and to present a solution to the problem that they're sharing with you. And so I like that. And I also think that a lot of distributors are probably naturally suspicious of a supplier who says that they truly understand their business. But if you can then throw out and say, well, hey, I worked at this distributor for years and was successful selling to national accounts like Kellogg's, then their ears pick up and say, hey, hang on a second. You could actually be a legitimate partner as opposed to just someone who's slinging product at me. Correct. That's exactly it. All right. So let's talk a little bit about 2007. So you moved from the distributorship to the Magnet Group in 2007. I'm curious what made you decide to jump over the fence, as it were. And I'm curious if you can share what the biggest adjustment and change was for you. So at that point in my career, I had been, of course, in Kalamazoo at that stage for almost nine years. Of course, I was there through college and then jumped right into my job at PCI. So I was looking for a change, was single at the time, you know, really hadn't seen a lot of new scenery as far as, you know, traveling and getting a chance to meet some additional people. Obviously, I was meeting new people throughout the accounts that I was working with. My time with Paul had ended and there were some changes with the accounts that I was covering at the time. So my link to the relationships that I had with Kellogg's was unfortunately no longer there. So it was easier for me in a sense, and I hate to say it this way, but easily cut the umbilical cord and move along. I am loyal to a fault in some cases where I don't want to upset the apple cart in some cases. So it was easy for me to shift over on that side. I had met a lot of, of course, you know, different supplier reps and made a lot of relationships that way and just you know, had a lot of feedback from mutual supplier friends saying, hey, you should try this side of the business. You could probably, you know, expand your career and get into more, you know, focused opportunities down the road if you spread your wings this way. So that's pretty much how it all transpired. Right. And so I'm curious, when you got to the Magnet Group, like what represented the biggest adjustment and change for you? Or, or was there? I mean, was it just business as usual? Travel, you know, yeah. the the travel schedule was the biggest change for me. You know, there wasn't a lot of outside travel or overnight organizing your schedule and you're in this state this week and you're in this state this week. There wasn't a lot of that, you know, calendar focus on my distributor side days. So that was the major change for me as far as organizing my time, which I right. had always been, you know, organized on various fronts in other ways. But the travel was the, the biggest change. The right. presentation, that fell into place. And thankfully, I had already, you know, had experience with the product line for the Magnet Group. So there wasn't a lot of product training in certain areas needed because I had already been doing a presentation in general 
you know, right. for, for five years. So that was easy for me. Right, right. How does the way you sell as a supplier differ today than when you first started 10 years ago? In a short sentence, the dog and pony show presentation style does not exist anymore. Right. You know, the organization of setting up a schedule and having three to four set appointments a day where you're bringing in the sample bag and setting up in a conference room and, you know, just doing that style of presentation, that doesn't happen anymore. Right. You know, of course, some of our customers are more online-based, so you're not yeah. necessarily bringing in products. You're breaking down, you know, various aspects of their business overall as far as key categories that are online. There are other meetings where, of course, you're having meetings in a different setting, whether it's over lunch, you're not even bringing a single product in. It's more of a one-on-one discussion. So drilling down business opportunities are not solely around the sample bag, as I first experienced it earlier on. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear you say that because I think that suppliers, this is a very general statement, I think have struggled with the transition from look at my product to let's talk business in a more strategic fashion. And to be sure, there's no question there's a lot of extremely smart suppliers that get strategy. But I think one of the challenges of being a supplier is that you're in the business of moving product. And if you don't move product, then you're in trouble. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to say, here are the 25 new products that we just launched this quarter from 75 cents to $19. And it's a very, very easy for a supplier to kind of get caught in that trap where they have to understand their product. And then suppliers will then think, well, it's the distributor's job to talk the business strategy and to go and make sense of the products that I've just pitched them. And then the distributor will then go and make business sense of this. I know that's a very quaint example, but it's certainly feedback that I have received from some suppliers that question whether their job is to be the creative thinker versus the product thinker. Correct. You know, there's a lot of avenues where both on our side and the distributorship side where you're doing your own type of research. So, you know, the knowledge of what type of products the Magnet Group or any supplier for that matter has you can get that on various fronts and, and in various ways, whether it's, you know, solely looking at our Facebook page to, of course, going on the website to having a conversation with someone. So right. from that perspective, you know, going in and having those more, in no other terms, you know, intimate discussions about business opportunities, I feel is more beneficial. I can show right. you a power clip until we're blue in the face. You know, when we're looking at your business spend and where the opportunities lie, you might not even have that on a website if it's, you know, a web, web-focused web program. So it's really becoming more of a smart approach on doing yeah. the homework and having those successful meetings together that is going to hit home, right. again, appropriate for the market and appropriate for the audience, that particular customer, that particular buyer that you're meeting with. And right. your 9 o'clock meeting and discussion is going to be different than your 1 o'clock. They're never the same. Right. Right. So switching gears here, based on what you know as a distributor as well as a supplier, if I approached you as an aspiring entrepreneur that wanted to get into the promotional products industry, what advice would you give me? And if I was to make this a two-part question, would you nudge me in the distributor direction or in the supplier direction? Great question. If I had to pinpoint it down to one area, I would say you have to 
listen to what your customers are telling you, not just hear what they're telling you, listen to what they're telling you, and be proactive and responsive to what they've asked you to do. Many times I hear, whether it's as a previous distributor before or, of course, today working on the supplier side, one of the main complaints that I hear is that you have a meeting with someone and nothing happens afterwards. So you feel like what you've told them and what you've opened up and shared with that person has fallen on deaf ears. So I would strongly advise that person looking into this type of business is that when you're truly looking to grow opportunities with your customers, you have to listen to what they're telling you and what their needs are and yeah. acting appropriately based upon what they've shared with you. Right. You know, there are a lot of business opportunities that lie within the distributorship model today. And there are a lot of sales opportunities that I would say exist within a wide range of levels of business and organizations. And I think sometimes when we look at spend, you might say you work with the procurement you know, office of a particular customer, but you're not necessarily drilling into some of the other areas of business, like I had mentioned earlier with, you know, covering all bases of what Paul told me to do. You know, where are their awards and recognition? What are they doing for their HR needs? You know, where is the the overall marketing and how promotional products tie into various aspects of different areas of their business, not just in marketing and in, you know, customer relationship. Right, right. So, you know, I hate to say don't go supplier, but I think in some cases, if you're outside looking in, there might be more of an immediate, you know, distributor opportunity because our industry is changing so much. Right. And I think that that could be the focus of a, an entire podcast where you get into it. But I think it's a great answer. It's certainly balanced. And I share with you, you know, your feeling that to start a suppliership is, I don't know whether you're saying is necessarily more risk. I just think it's a different kettle of fish altogether. And, and maybe I can also speak from experience because, of course, I started in this industry as a distributorship and still have an ownership stake in Right Sleeve in Toronto that when I first got into the industry as someone who was entrepreneurial and really interested in sales and marketing, I was able to hit the ground running immediately by selling to end clients because I could get direct feedback from them. I could align myself with suppliers that I knew would support the vision of my company and also meet the needs of my customers. And from there, you're able to take that one order and invest back into the business and then it just grows and grows and grows. That's a great model for someone who has that disposition. If you're someone who wants to go offshore and invest a lot of money in inventory and bring it back to North America and create a sales force through a group of distributors, it's fundamentally different, but you know, it's just a different model. So I think it has a lot to do with your own personal makeup as to what you're interested in. And on the flip side to that, Mark, there's always, if you had a outside the box can't find it anywhere else products or service yep. that you could provide to the industry, then by all means, that's certainly an area of opportunity. But jumping in and into a category where you already know there are industry veterans that have been doing it for many, many years, and yep. they've tweaked certain areas where they know didn't work and it's working well now, yep. getting into that area is unfortunately you're a small fish in a really big pond. And yep. getting the business spend might be a lot more difficult. It's a really brilliant observation, Jessica, when you said that, because the exact same thing, I think, applies to distributors as well. 
So it happens if you get into the business, you get excited about the fact that IBM has a big budget or Procter & Gamble has got a big budget for promotional products. You knock on the door and your pitch is, we've got a lot of promotional products and we can beat the lowest price or come up with some, to be quite honest, lame sales pitch that you haven't really put a lot of thought and effort into. Of course, I'm making a bit of a general comment there. But the reality is that IBM and Procter & Gamble, just to use two name brand examples, are extremely well served by people who can sell them all sorts of things, whether it's the low price guy, whether it's the program guy, whether it's the custom creative guy. And unless you're going to come into that very crowded marketplace with a very unique story, then you're dead in the water right. and you might as well focus on a different yep. channel. And, and you see that all the yep. time at Expo. You see the new supplier shows up and you go, yeah. why? And then you see... Oh, look. Oh, look, another pen. <laughs> yeah, look, another pen. But then you see right. some other supplier mm-hmm. who's just brilliant where they just killed it and you have a lineup around the corner where people are excited about the new product. But anyways, why don't we move on? But I, I but I just, I'm so glad that we got that on tape because it's such an important thing to understand your value proposition and what makes you unique, whether you're a distributor or a supplier. All right. Another question about suppliers from a 30,000 foot perspective. So we've seen a lot of consolidation in the industry, particularly on the supplier side. I think it just happened yesterday where there was an announcement that ProTowels had acquired Neatfeet in a relatively small acquisition, but we've seen some monster mergers and acquisitions over the last 12 months. I know Magnet Group has certainly acquired a number of companies over the last several years. What do you make of this consolidation? Is it good or bad for the industry? To sum it up, strength in numbers. Yep. I feel that, you know, to speak on, you know, a little bit what I shared earlier, there is something to be said about those that are finally focusing on the importance of promotional products within our industry and the value that they bring. And unfortunately, we hear every day that, well, you, you just sell, you know, trinkets and trash or whatever the phrase that, you know, the person wants to use for that week. For some of these investment companies to truly see that there is the opportunity to make a valuable business mark within an industry that obviously has a benefit, I think speaks volumes to what we've done since the start of our industry to today. You know, of course, we have on the Magnet Group side, obviously, there's the investment side of our business. We've seen it with some other top 40 suppliers, and that will continue, you know, on throughout, I would say, you know, the the coming years. But I think, you know, to sum it up, there's something to be said about strength and numbers. And when you consolidate major areas of opportunity within certain categories under the umbrella of a strong supplier, that just helps to narrow down the spend on the distributor front where you're cutting out that long list of 7,500, you know, and I'm going off of how many were in the ASI database when I was a distributor. I'm sure it's grown astronomically since then, you know, in, you know, the 7,500 number in the ASI fast find for supplier opportunities. So, you know, strength in numbers. Yeah. And I think that that argument certainly holds a lot of water when you're speaking about these big categories where you've got several Me Too suppliers. And we were just talking about that, like who needs another pen? Unless, of course, the pen is particularly innovative and fills a need that doesn't exist in the market. 
But if let's say just using the example of pens, if there happen to be five pen suppliers who are sourcing from the exact same place in China and there's not a lot of differentiation to have them all consolidated, you can make an argument that that's a good thing. I think, of course, where these things can turn out not so great is when you have small, innovative companies that are acquired by larger companies that end up getting lost in the shuffle and are no longer able to innovate. I think you see that a lot, not so much in our industry, but in other industries where a lot of this consolidation can damage competition or damage innovation. So I think that we just need to be, um, my two cents on this is, while I certainly agree with you that there's economies of scale and efficiencies at work, I think we also need to be careful to make sure that we're fostering a climate of innovation in the industry and attracting new suppliers that are bringing new things to the table. So that's, that's what I've said in the past. And, you know, that's what I would say to this. Absolutely. I agree to that point as well. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about you and your selling style. And I know a lot of people who know you, Jessica, would say that you're a creative, bubbly, personable, outgoing, all of these great personality traits. So here's my question. So You're a people person with a wonderful personality and a great relationship builder. How do these skills apply in an increasingly technological and transactional promotional products environment in 2016? We see, of course, like you said, that business is changing and more of our transactions are coming online. However, when something goes wrong, when you need to drill down that business opportunity, Surrey isn't going to have the answer for you. Jessica Heiner will. (laughs) And that's where (laughs) that's where you will have the option to, you know, have that one on one personal approach. If you take the personal out of it, I'm not interested anymore. I don't want to be a part of a of an industry that I've worked so hard to build that relationship. You know, when I was a distributor, there wasn't really an online presence with PCI as far as where our major, you know, area of opportunity was coming from. It was all that right. face-to-face interaction. And that, you know, that, again, that was something that Paul, you know, instilled in me as far as you have to build that quality rapport with your customer because in the end, many times they're coming to you based upon it's doing business with you. It has nothing to do with the product that you sell. They will sell yeah. what you have because they want to support you. Yeah. So in this ever-changing climate of where we see more online business, I still foresee, you know, there needs to be that feet-on-the-street approach to some degree when it comes down to that personal aspect of the business model from start to finish. Right. So, Jessica, someone who presumably has to hit a sales number because you're in a sales capacity, I'm curious if you can tell me what tactic or channel is the most effective for you in securing business to help you achieve your sales goals? For me personally, you know, to speak to that point on business relationship, having those discussions and dialogue with your customers, it's not sending, you know, the the large amounts of emails. It's not the number of e-blasts you spend in a month. It's not the overall approach to just general wide advertisement in a sense. I've been successful because of areas where you drill down each individual sales rep's needs and where we can help on a one-on-one basis and go to the next one, you know, line by line, person by person, and review your business spend from that degree. Right. 
I just love the fact that you're talking about really letting your relationship skills come to the forefront. And regardless of whether we're in a social media technological transaction world, it's still something that comes to the forefront. So I'm not surprised that you continue to be successful. I mean, you're obviously adapting with the tools you're using, but at the end of the day, your core sales approach hasn't changed. And that's helping you drive those numbers. And that's why I asked you that. I wanted to ask you how this specifically ties back into why you have a job. (laughs) And the reason you've got a job, obviously, is because you're driving meaningful business and you're doing that through this relationship skill. So thank you for that. I've got two more questions I want to ask you, Jessica, and then we'll close off. I'm curious from your perspective as to which distributor models you see thriving the most today. And flip side, which models are failing? You know, it's funny. All of your questions are strategically molded in together. So we're bringing in what, you know, some of the things we've talked about into future questions. So I love it. The models that I see working very well are those that are adapting to the online presence. They have that strength in numbers approach with their team that's in the field, the one-on-one relationships with the, you know, major Fortune 500 programs down to, of course, the, you know, smaller mom and pop business that many have been successful with. But on the flip side, for those customers, and as we get more into adapting to how millennials do business and where spend is, is being driven, they also have to have that strong online approach. And some are doing very well and others, I think, in my opinion, have some work to do because I feel that they're losing some market share on that front. Right. And are you able to talk specifically what kinds of models? I'm not interested in names, obviously, but which types of distributors are the ones that are faltering right now? I would say those that are faltering, you know, they have those, you know, website presence that isn't necessarily, you know, start to finish approach as far as what they can find in the online world. You know, the online model specifically, and some solely have, you know, an online presence only, but they're not penetrating the business, of course, where the live, you know, person-to-person interaction on the sales approach exists. Right. I think a way to sum it up is what you're, I think, talking about is that the businesses that are thriving today fall into a couple categories. They're either great full-service online businesses that are doing a lot of business and are able to cater to the customer segment that wants to buy online, and also distributors that have got a great full-service approach to solving business problems, and they're professional from point A to point Z. Whereas the distributors that are not doing as well are maybe the ones that are more transaction-oriented, the order takers, I mean, that's nothing new, or people that are not investing as much as they could in their business. They may have a white-label website. It looks like everyone else's. They don't necessarily articulate their point of differentiation. They look like everyone else. We talked about that on the supplier side. And those kinds of businesses may have done well 10 years ago when they were the local person in their market that was able to get the customers yo-yos. But now in a much more competitive and dynamic atmosphere, they kind of start to blend in. So I I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think that's what I heard from what you're saying. That's a great, yes, that's a great point. I think taking that a step further, those that are not willing to change will be left in the dust. 
because yes. there are a lot of things that are quickly moving, quickly changing within, you know, the 15 years that I've been in the industry. It's night and day what it yeah. looked like then and what it looks like now and what it'll look like, you know, 15 years from now. I don't even know. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm curious what that will bring, but buckle up, be ready. And if you're not, you might, <laughs> I guess, apply at McDonald's. I don't know. It's, uh, you have to be adept. You, you know, you have to be ready for change. Otherwise, yeah, I, you won't survive. I love it. I love it. And apply to McDonald's, as you say. So that's, that's harsh. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, well, yeah, you I, get my point. I do. But hey, you know, it's all about being honest on this podcast. Okay, last question for you. You work for Bill Korowitz. Bill, of course, has been on the Promo Kitchen podcast before. It was uh, certainly one of our more interesting interviews. Uh, learned a lot from Bill. And I'm curious if you can share with me the single biggest lesson Bill has taught you in your 10 years working with him. Oh, Bill has taught me more than I can even count as far as, you know, the various aspects of business and even personally as, as well. When I first started, of course, I had just turned 26. I was young, had experience, of course, dealing with a multi-million dollar account that I was covering and, and of course, was handling multi, you know, millions of dollars on that side of the distributorship that I worked for. You know, I didn't have a lot of experience when I first started within the areas of negotiation and business approach when someone threw something at you and you had to respond, but I responded too quickly. You know, right. It's okay to stop, take a breath. It's okay to count to 10. It's okay to sleep on it. It's okay to ask questions. Don't automatically jump to a conclusion and jump to a response that in 30 minutes you might regret or you might have a different answer. Yep. Gather your thoughts, gather your facts and move forward appropriately. You know, when you're young, you're quick, and you're ready to, to jump. Bill has taught me a lot within, you know, that side of the business that, you know, today, of course, with handling negotiations and contracts in different areas of business obviously helps myself and, and others that work on my team, you know, where I can share what he's taught me, yep. uh, and they can be successful on their front as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. It's simple advice, but I think really powerful, particularly for people that are getting into the industry that may not have as much experience that I, I think it is a bit of a rookie error to either shoot your mouth off or, or to respond right. in a way where, you know, you'll regret it the following day. And it's really, really hard to count to 10 or it's hard not to send that email if you feel you've been slighted or someone has come at you and I think it's against a lot of people's instincts. So that's phenomenal advice. And I know there's lots of other things that he's taught you, but I, I did ask you just for the one. So um, I think I think in closing, Jessica, outside of thanking you for lending us your time and, and a huge amount of expertise here, is there anything that you would like to leave the Promo Kitchen audience with, either one last morsel of wisdom or how folks can get in touch with you if they want to connect with you outside of the podcast? You know, I appreciate the opportunity and just in general, of course, talking with you today. I think, you know, for me, what I try to do, and of course, we all have our bad days, but I try to share my knowledge and my expertise and my experiences with others, of course, always focused around the golden rule. And I think sometimes 
some aren't necessarily too focused in that area or in that arena. So I would say never forget that, you know, bringing it back down to the basics and just respecting each other and respecting one another and we can all be successful together when you are welcoming and you're open to, you know, areas of opportunity, you know, mutually together. I think that's where we can all be successful and I've, you know, surrounded myself with others that share that same sentiment. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.